past month, going back to Father's Day, uh, they've been on various differences. And uh, they're, they're listed each week what they were, and you can listen to them on uh, the website or buy a, a CD if you want to hear them. Um, so I've been preaching for the month of July while Pastor Earl's gone, and uh, Pastor Fred will now begin preaching in August, and I will be preaching at the Lake of the Hills uh, campus. This morning I want to preach on differences in marriage, or as it says here in uh, the blog, it says differences between God's purpose for marriage and the world's system. we got a world out there telling us how to act, but we got a word telling us how to live. And uh, there are three things that are going to be different about this message this morning. Number one, I have never preached a message on marriage to the whole church on a Sunday morning uh, because everybody isn't married, so I've always stayed away from that. Secondly, I don't think I've ever preached a message as a book review. Uh, before this morning, I'm basing my message on a lecture uh, that I heard as well as a book by Gary Thomas. He'd written a book, Sacred Marriage, that has challenged and inspired me, and I just feel I have to share it with our whole congregation and number three, I've never before preached a message and then put a manuscript out of the message. So I'm going to be preaching more from manuscript. If I get behind, I may have to start reading real fast. But there will be people that may want to take this home. It's on the uh, book and tape center as well as the welcome center, uh, the copy of the message ahead of time. In case you want to go over this and review it, or especially in the middle of summer, we've got people that aren't here on vacation. It's going to be available for them, and I just felt that that's what we should do with this message uh, this morning. So, kind of different, but uh, I guess the messages are on being different. So, that's what we're doing. Amen? I really feel impelled, impelled to do this, because number one, there is such a loose idea about marriage floating around today. Whether you're married or not, the ideas are being propagated, uh, often... Uh, we get our advice or our opinions, the basis for our actions from every other source except what God's Word has to say. We listen to Oprah and talk shows. We read magazines and um, watch sitcoms and soap operas and uh, converse with friends and neighbors. We listen to people at work for advice on how we should act, what we should be doing, uh, what's best for our marriage, we take the advice of the person in the cubicle next to us rather than getting on our knees and seeking God for his advice. Um, sorry to be so serious about this, but I'm really pumped on this. I think we need to stop and think about uh, what we're doing. Opinions are formulated from our society around about us in which we live rather than on the Word of God. And another point that I want to make before I start as a disclaimer is I realize there are a lot of people in church who are not married, were married, aren't married now, and they really already may feel this doesn't apply uh, to them. Okay, that's the reason that's kept me from preaching for years on this in the church on a Sunday. But I feel we need this message at this time, even if we're not married. Because I also know that there are people that, are not, not married. There are people who's had some bad marriages in the past. Marriages that haven't worked out. And, and that brings heartache. And I don't want to hurt people or make them feel bad. But, but I think we in the church need to speak out on what is God's plan and what God does want us to be doing. So I really feel this message this morning, uh, at this time, even if we're not married, 
is important because everybody needs to know what the Word of God is saying on this subject. Good place for an amen. Good. Uh, see, people are looking up there. That's going to come later. Uh, you want to wait till I get to that there? Uh, I'm not that far yet. I haven't even prayed yet. Um, i got to coordinate everything. Pray for me, would you? Um, what I'm saying is this point, we all need to understand God's plan instead of man's way to whatever we're doing in life. We hear man's way all the time. What is God saying? And thirdly, I really believe this message can help us understand not only marriage, but all sorts of relationship between people. There are people with problems with people in their family or problems with friends they're dealing with. Bosses at work, co-workers. This will help us to understand the many different relationships in our life. And then you make the application to your life according to your situation. Amen? We're all on the same page. And I believe that God can help us. I'm praying that God will help us this morning because especially in our relationships to begin to look at them from a spiritual perspective as to what God wants to do in our lives. And I especially pray that it will help all of us to know about godly marriages. So when we hear the talk in the office, or when we uh, get opinions given to us, or we're offered advice, our convictions, as I've said, will be based upon the Word of God and not modern lifestyles. Could we pray and ask the Lord to bless us as we get started? Father, I thank you for this premise upon which we're building this morning. And I just pray for divine anointing, O oh God. I pray that all of our hearts will be open. Touch us as we hear this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, before couples get married, when they're just dating and going together, have you ever noticed how nice everybody is? Couldn't be nicer. More romantic people. We're polite. We're easy to get along with. Uh, we never had a fault that anybody can see. And I think that's where we get the old saying, love is blind. Because we don't recognize anything is wrong with our future spouse. And then the beautiful marriage ceremony is over, and how soon afterwards it can blow up in, in your face. Almost about nothing, because the real you comes out. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it, I forgot. The problem is not with you, right? It's with the other person, right? The real spouse comes out, right? And we say, oh, man. It's like I heard somebody said they thought they married a Mercedes-Benz, and then found out it was a geoprism. Smallest little thing can irritate us to no end because they, our new sp wife or spouse, the person on the job, whatever, they do diff things differently than we do, and it begins to irritate us. I've told you I've been referring these messages to my new author friend, Gary Thomas, and I've illustrated it with three weeks now with hearing him speak and, and reading his books. And he described what happened to him and his wife, Lisa, uh, soon after he was married. I thought I'd take time to share this with you, see if you can relate. Because the issue, as they just soon got married, was over ice cubes. Because, see, in his home, when you got ice cubes out of the tray, it was your job to fill the tray back up, put it in for the next person, so you'd always have ice cubes. And to me, that sounds totally logical. Good point. In fact, Gary said he was convinced that's a biblical way to behave yourself in the kitchen. But his wife, Lisa, her family, they only filled the ice trays up when it was empty, down to the last chip. Maybe they'd have to scrape it off with a knife 
That's the way they did it. And as her, as her husband, newly, uh, he had to get used to, uh, he had to adjust to drinking warm Pepsi. And worse than that, he had total frustration in not being able to explain to his new bride how much joy and happiness depended upon him having a full tray of ice cubes. And so he got very creative. One evening, they were being romantic, newly married, and he, he asked her, he said, how much do you love me? And she said, oh, Gary, I will love you forever. And uh, he answered, I don't need you to love me forever. She just pulled back. What? What do you mean? He said, I only need you to love me for seven seconds. She said, what? What does that mean? He said, well, I timed how long it takes to fill the ice cube trays. Oh, it takes seven seconds. That's all I need you to love me for right now. Get the ice cube trays full. Uh, needless to say, that was the end of the romantic evening. But... Uh, then he said, I really like it. He said, if that sounds pathetic to you, it's just as pathetic to me. He said, after telling that intimate moment, he said, I said to myself, how pathetic is that? What has happened to this nice, polite guy that he had always been? If anybody had told him, he said, how petty he could be with his new bride over something as stupid as ice cube trays, that something that important could become an issue in his marriage, he wouldn't have believed them. But there was something about this enforced intimacy of marriage, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, togetherness, that enforced intimacy of marriage that would challenge him as he had never been challenged before uh, in his life. And it was shocking to him that he was challenged far more as a married person than he'd ever been as a single man. And nobody had warned him about that. Oh, he said, we'd had great counseling. We read all the books. We'd been warned about the normal issues like keeping romance alive and not going into debt and dealing with in-laws and resolving conflict. But he said nobody had warned them about the spiritual challenge of marriage. And there is a spiritual challenge along with all of the other adjustments. This is life. This is real life. And you're no doubt when you enter that going to see a side of yourself. If you're not married, maybe even at work or with your other family members, but you see a side of yourself revealed. And you may not like yourself too much when you get into conflict like that. I've been around long enough, dealt with enough couples. It always bothers me. I say it bothers me more than I could say when couples have not made it or have separated, had marriages broken. It's a lot of frustration for the spouse that is left or the spouse that's leaving. And uh, I feel it myself personally. Uh, sometimes it's not just seeing the picture realistically. Uh, they just don't get it. They miss the point. And I feel like you've got to be polite. You feel like, say, hey, grow up in this thing. But the other side, maybe it's not just missing the point. Part of the frustration sometimes is people break up marriage because they are ashamed of the person that they were in that relationship. They can remember who they were. They remember things they said or, or what they did or moments they were ashamed of. And they don't feel they could ever regain their self-respect. And rather than seeing that, let me just say this, rather than seeing all those things that went wrong, seeing that as a call to repentance, 
or a call to humility, call to confession of our needs, which would help us to grow in Christ, but rather than, than, than to do that, the natural tendency is just to leave and bail out, run off to somebody else who hasn't seen all my stuff before. Because we're really saying, I can't, be, can't bear to be with somebody who has seen me that way. Problem with that is, our stuff travels with us. If we don't learn to deal with it in the first place, we're still the same person moving on to different relationships. And what I want to get across this morning is that there is a spiritual dimension to marriage, as well as a physical dimension or a psychological dimension of two people becoming one, and we have to face this spiritual challenge head on. And I think if we would do that and get a right picture according to the Word of God, it would help us in our relationships. We haven't heard too much about the spiritual challenge, but it got me to thinking, do we even look at marriage in the right way? Do we even look at what God planned for marriage? What's the purpose of marriage to begin with? Why has God designed marriage? Populate the earth? What's his purpose in it? And we need to ask, have I even been looking at marriage in the right way? Or do I look at it selfishly? In other words, as I said before, what has God designed in it? What was his purpose in bringing us together? And here's a thought. Maybe it's already been on the board, but I'm going to put it back on the screen. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, there's a concept. What if God was not so interested in our happiness as he is our holiness. Wow. That's something to think about. See, not that holiness and happiness are mutually exclusive. We can be both. I think God wants us to have the best of everything in his plan when we're in his will. But the question is, what was God's purpose for marriage? Why did God give it to us? And uh, again, while Gary, this author, was struggling with these things, his brother asked him, what was marriage really like after he got married? What was marriage like? And so he pondered a few moments, thought about it, and then he answered, put it on the screen for you. If you want to be free to serve Jesus, there's no question, just stay single. You can stay single without, you, you can say, serve Jesus better with, by not being married, because married takes a lot of time. But if you want to be like Jesus, he said, I can't imagine a better thing to do than get married. It'll make you like Jesus. Being married forces you to, to face some character issues that you might not face otherwise. There will be things coming to attention. See, I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. He said, it is, a good, it is good for a man not to marry. That's what Paul said. Because then he went on in the chapter and said, because then he could serve God with his whole heart, totally unhindered. If you get married, you've got to pay the rent. You've got to raise the kids. You have to take care of your household. All of these things. So he said, if you really want to serve God, even Paul said, don't get married. But if you want to be like Jesus, then I would say, go ahead and get married. Because it's going to work out your character issues like nothing else, is what Gary was saying. I want to give you some quotes from his book, Sacred Marriage. That, that he wrote, put it on the board again. He said, I found there was a tremendous amount of immaturity within me that my marriage directly confronted. Head on. The key was I had to change my view of marriage. If the purpose was simply to enjoy an infatuation and make me happy, then I'd have to get a new marriage every two or three years. 
But if I want to see God transform me from the inside out, I need to concentrate on changing myself rather than changing my spouse. That's all one or two amens on that. <laughs> it was so, that just got to, in fact, you go on to say, the more difficult that our spouse proves to be sometimes, the more opportunity you have to grow. More development takes place. I, I want to quote from Socrates here. 400 years before Christ, as I prepared this, I got all kinds of things. So I'm throwing in a lot of things here. But Socrates said, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. Think about it. it. What are we saying? We think that marriage should be all fun and bliss all the time because that's what Hollywood and magazines picture, and yet there is so much divorce and problems, so evidently it's not all fun and bliss. This culture portrays everything that's worth anything. It has to be young and, and beautiful, and when it's not, that it's, it's not always a fairy tale then we freak out. What am I going to do? This isn't going right. And we say, there's something wrong with this picture. Well, I want to say, yeah, there is something wrong with the picture because we need a biblical solution. Is there no more purpose for two people living together as husband and wife than just to be happy and having our needs met? Or is God working in us by that relationship so we'll be more like Christ? That's my premise this morning. Are we just going to be happy ourselves or are we going to mature in Christ to be what he wants us to be? How does that work? See, the real transforming work of marriage is that 24 hours a day, that seven days a week commitment. And this is the thing that shapes and molds us into the character of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think, well, I could be more spiritual if I could just spend more time alone with God. And I think that's what Paul was referring to. If I want to spend a lot of time, then don't take on these responsibilities. Um, somebody said, maybe spiritual, spend more time. Somebody said, instead of getting up at 3 a.m. to be in prayer like they used to do in the monastery, the question becomes, who will wake up at 3 a.m. when the baby's diaper needs changing? Here's responsibilities. And uh, marriage calls us to an entirely new and selfless life. And any situation that caused me to confront my selfishness, I want to say has enormous spiritual value. So I say, this isn't just for marriage this morning. Anything that causes you to consult your selfishness. It may be your appetites. It may be the people you work with, your job, whatever, family, whatever. If it's going to Confront yourself, there's great spiritual value. And we slowly begin to understand the real purpose of marriage may not be my happiness as much as my holiness, as I referred to before. I believe that marriage is one of life situations that can draw my sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment from God. Amen? See, I have to say, my wife, Jerry, beautiful as she is, can't make me happy. Not in the ultimate since she's tried for 45 years, no, I'm saying, but she can't make me happy. But we've had some great times together. Uh, but the great times through the years have been sprinkled uh, with the demands, the challenges, uh, the expectation of paying bills on time, discipline of the children. We had kids at home, right, Jody? Uh, earning a living. 
keeping the house clean, regular things of life. And I guess what we've really lived for is a quieter fulfillment, a deeper, a deeper sense of meaning, fuller understanding of the purpose behind this intense one-on-one marriage relationship. As someone who really believes, as I do, the primary meaning comes from our relationship with God, I want to understand and see how marriage, how marriage can be brought into that. Or I want to get on and say, any other relationship, it may not be a wife you have to get along with, it might be an irritable roommate or an intolerant boss. All those things can draw you closer to the Lord. And that's our goal, amen? I believe a lot of dissatisfaction that we experience comes from all the expectations that the world puts on us, all the trappings. And sometimes we expect too much, even from our marriages, that 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 is going to satisfy me, that my spouse is going to meet my needs, and if she doesn't, I'm going to be miserable. And so we look at, it's supposed to take care of me. This morning I want us to look and point beyond marriage because spiritual growth is the main theme of this message. Marriage is just the context in which we live and we work out this spiritual growth. See, the ultimate purpose is not to make your spouse love you more, although I think they will as you work out the the life together. The ultimate purpose really should be to equip us to love God more and to help us to reflect on the character of his son that he wants to form in us, that we're more godly than, please make me happy. Amen? Though the experience of, uh, of marriage, through that, we can come to know God in new ways. I want to say ways you would never discover by yourself because you wouldn't be face-to-face with some of those challenges. I want to call this divine romance. I'm going to put it on board. Divine romance. I'll give you about five examples quickly from the Word of God. Number one is Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. He leads us to a startling reality, and that is that God views his people as a husband views his wife. Hosea 2.16 is up there. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will, verse 19, I will make you my wife forever. Think about the difference this morning between what? Between husband and master. What's the difference between husband and master? and the images that all this conjures up in our minds. See, God wants us to relate to him in obedience that's fueled by love, and and not just our self-motivation or fear of God as a master with a big whip up there. How do you view God? As a master or as a husband? Isaiah uses uh, marital imagery to stress how God rejoices over his people, Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom. As a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so will God rejoice over you. Hallelujah. You know, maybe some people are not too noticed here in this world or in their marriage, but that verse tells us God delights in us. He's our heavenly bridegroom. I don't say God is happy with what's going on in us when we're becoming conformed to his son. Third example I want to give a dime romance is what Jesus used in the marriage picture. He refers to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9.15. He refers to the kingdom of God as a wedding banquet in Matthew 24. 
Revelation talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, where the bride has made herself ready. Fourth example is Paul explicitly makes this analogy in his letter to the Ephesians. And if you've been in our church, you've heard this probably quoted dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, where he says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy. Why did he give himself? To make us holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stains or wrinkles or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. As long as a couple is married and they continue to display, however imperfectly, this ongoing analogy of Christ and his church. A couple of married really is giving the picture of Christ and his church. Christ loving us, us giving ourselves to him. And I say sometimes we do it pretty imperfectly, but there's an ongoing commitment as long as you are married that we are in that picture. And the question is this, will we approach marriage from a God-centered perspective or from a man-centered view? See, in a man-centered view, we'll maintain our marriage as long as earthly comforts, desires, expectations are met, and they go in our way, hey, we maintain this marriage. God-centered view, we preserve our marriage, our marriage because it brings glory to God. And this cannot be just marriage. It can be your testimony in the world. You're going to appoint sinful world to being reconciled to Christ. You're going to bring glory to God in your workplace. Because Christ is being formed in you, we can have a God-centered view of our life and not a man-centered view. How many people in your job? It's all about me. Take care of me. I want this. I want that. And same thing in marriage. In the God-centered view, we are bringing glory to God. And it's so unfortunate, I don't say it upsets me, but, but something as profound as living out the analogy of Christ and his church is reduced to experiencing this relationship merely as something that, number one, is going to help us avoid sin. What that verse, get married so you won't burn with lust. Uh, we're taking this beautiful picture. Well, I'll get married so I don't sin morally. Uh, another one, uh, it will help me keep the world populated or to provide a cure for loneliness. And that's all marriage is to some people. Number five, both the Old Testament and the New Testament use marriage as a central analogy. In the Old Testament, it's a union between God and Israel. In the New Testament, it's a union between Christ and his church. And therefore, it's not just going into a marriage relationship to avoid sin or populate the world or cure for loneliness. We are reflecting Jesus Christ and his atmosphere. And the last picture that I want to give to the world is that I have decided to stop loving someone or that I refuse to serve this person anymore or I, I failed to fulfill a promise that I made years ago. And that's precisely the message that I feel too many Christians are proclaiming by their actions. If I don't do it anymore, so what? I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But we're really hurting the cause of Christ because it's a picture of Christ in his church. George Barna, the pollster, found that people that describe themselves as born-again Christians have a higher divorce rate than non-believers, like 27% to 30 to 23%. I mean, that is not acceptable. I can't hardly believe that. And we're justifying it and following what the world 
what the world says is acceptable rather than what the Word of God is teaching. And that's not right, and that's why I'm preaching that this morning. I want us to know what is right. I have to speak out on that and let it be known where we stand as Christians trying to live by the Word of God. Going on, I could ask, why is marriage so hard? Why is marriage so difficult? Why isn't it easy? We hear of all the difficult, the breakups, the, 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 the need for counseling. And the spiritual challenge is clear in the text that I want to use today. How many times do you have the pastor go for about 30 minutes and then give his text? Well, the text this morning is going to be in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 2. And to me, it is amazing what Scripture can say in just six words, and they are, we all stumble in many ways according to the NIV. According to the New Living Test uh, Translation, indeed, we all make many mistakes. I want you to think about the implication of two words in that sentence. All and many. We all stumble in many ways. What does all mean? Like the old saying, all means all, that's all all means. All means all. And uh, let's say you're fed up with your current spouse and you decide you want to trade him or her in for a new model. And so you put out the word, and you get about 200 prospective candidates, put them through a battery of tests, uh, whittle it down to 12 semi-finalists, have your friends, your family interview them, you come up with three finalists, and you spend two years of dating, getting to know them, sounds like the bachelorette or something. Uh, spend two years getting to know them, then two weeks fasting and prayer, and then you make your choice. After all that entire process, if you can believe Scripture, you still come up with somebody that stumbles. <laughs> Try your best. And how often are they going to stumble? In many ways. In many ways, nonetheless. Why? Well, here's the challenge. We forget how deeply sin is rooted into us. See, we define skin, sin as scandalous things, especially when it comes to marriage. I'm not going to strip clubs. I'm not committing adultery, running around. I'm not robbing anybody. I'm not getting drunk. I don't use those words. But we forget about the sense of entitlement, the selfishness, the pride, the resentment, the, the bitterness. And James, who wrote this book, James 3.2, he wrote, we all stumble in many ways. You know, James, he had a unique perspective on this because James literally grew up as the brother of Jesus in the same household. Everybody know that? Not the same father, but the same mother because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but they had the same mother. And uh, imagine what it's like growing up with a perfect brother. Imagine sibling, sibling rivalry in that context. I'm sure James had a little problem uh, he had to get to know after a while he couldn't win, no matter what. Jesus is going to be perfect. He's not. And it got a little frustrating. There's Jesus, goody two-choos, we'd say. Uh, Jesus, always perfect, we'd think. Can you picture what would happen if James tried to cop out the perfect scene? I'm going to get Jesus. I'm going to get him in trouble. What if he calls out in the middle of the night, Hey, Mom, Jesus, push me. Mary would answer, no, James, we know Jesus would never do that. <laughs> now he's going to get in trouble for lying, for bringing false witness against his brother. 
He's got to know after a while he just can't win. Then he writes, as an adult, and if you want proof as to the deity of Christ, if your own brother believes you're God, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of respect for my six-foot, seven-foot tall brother, but I never thought he was God. James, writing to the early church, could say, look, I live with a perfect man. I saw the way he loves. I saw his righteous attitude. There was no guile, no pretense. Perfect. And the Apostle James says, I know perfection, and I am writing we all stumble in many ways. Isn't that interesting? There's no problem going into marriage uh, because when we tend to be younger and we compare ourselves uh, to someone that's a lot worse than we are, uh, compare ourselves to some other husband, I, I would never treat my wife like that. My wife doesn't realize how good she's got it. Or you ever heard women say, if my husband only had to be married to her, he'd really see what he has to put up with. He doesn't know how good he's got it. You know, Maybe we should compare ourselves to Christ, as James did. Then we'd see one sinner going to marry another sinner, <laughs> be united in marriage, and realize that we all stumble in many ways. I, I usually hear people who come for marriage counseling or to talk about it, they usually start like, well, I'm in a difficult marriage. I've had people meet me like, I'm in a difficult marriage. And I, you have to be polite when you're a pastor, but I just feel like stopping them right then and saying, wait a minute, that's redundant. Difficult marriage, those are almost synonyms. Uh, that's redundant to say, you've already said difficult and marriage, you've explained it. Are you surprised that marriage difficult, is difficult? If marriage is one sinner who is stumbling in many ways, with another sinner who is stumbling in many ways, and occasionally they get together and have sex and create little people who are stumbling in many ways, what could possibly be easy about that? We should expect there's going to be difficult times. Our pride is going to be wounded. There'll be resentment at times. Or maybe we don't even feel a lack of love. Do we assume that we have a Poor marriage, just because it's difficult at times, because we look at, just look at seminar, uh, as marriage. The books, the seminars, the counseling, all is based on the how-to model. How to resolve conflict. How to get along. How to keep romance fresh and alive. And there's a lot of benefits to books. I don't have any problem with that. But this weakness is, everything is not how-to, the solution is preserving the heart to. Do you have the heart to? So if we ignore the motivation, if there's not the heart to, the how-to is not going to do me any good. You've got to have a heart to make this marriage work. You can know all the love languages, but if there's not the heart to, it's not going to do any good. We can't hide behind a lack of knowledge. I don't know how to romance my wife. I don't know. Let's be honest. Isn't that how you got them to marry you in the first place? Right? There was a time when you could make your wife feel very special or your fiancé. And uh, her response was, hey, I really like this. I I'll go ahead and agree to marry you. We really like that. Twenty years later, we just don't know how to do it anymore. How'd you know back then? Are we just more stupid now than we used to be? <laughs> Hey, if we get to the place, we couldn't recognize an emotion if it slapped us between the eyes. You know? Twenty years later, 
Or maybe I should say, in the face of our sin, we lose the heart to make this thing go. But if you have the heart to do it, you will figure out how to do it. See, I don't have to tell any infatuated couple, look, you need to reserve conf- uh, conflict, resolve conflict, excuse me. You need to resolve conflict. Hey, they can't even leave each other till it's all resolved. Oh, you need to spend more time together. No, that's all they want to do is spend time together. Let me give you, before I close, two ways to have the heart to. Number one is we have to rediscover God's purpose in marriage. What I've been preaching about. We have to rediscover what is God's purpose. And generally, most people get married because we think we'll have a better life with this person than without him or her. And that's the way we feel. And it's true. The, the concept is we'll be better off. Or if I marry this person, I'm going to be happier. I'm going to have a better life if I marry you than if I don't marry you. So that really means if we're really going to be honest, most of us get married for selfish reasons. What I'm going to get out of it. What if God's purpose for marriage is to make you more like Christ? Remember, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to uh, excuse me, came to serve, not to just be served. Are we going to be like Christ in our marriage? He came to serve, not just be served. We, we need to realize man's agenda for marriage is, is on one side, and God's agenda for marriage is on the other side. And, and, you know, we get pulled in the opposite direction. Man's view is pulling us this way. You've got to act like this. You've got to have this. You've got to do that. God's Word is pulling us this way, and we're, we're going back and forth. What we've got to do is, is not just be pulled back and forth. We not only need to pray, we need to pray that we would get on God's page rather than praying, God, get my wife on my page. We need to get on the right side. See, we've got to change our pattern because we got married to be served and we'll, all resent it. we'll always resent it if we're not being served like we think we should be. And then we resent the other person. But if God designed marriage to make me a servant, then I should be praying, God, teach me how to love rather than how to be loved. Teach me how to love rather than how to be loved. And those things that I used to resent in life or in marriage, I can actually appreciate as a way to die to myself. I'm growing in Christ. I'm being more conformed to His likeness. I used to resent this thing coming against me, and I didn't get my way, and I didn't get that. Every one of those things are times for us to die to our own feelings. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Get on the cross. You know, somebody told me one time, a dead man can't feel anything. If you're crucified with Christ, you're not going to feel all those resentments or those digs or all those things. We all know the greatest commandment given by Jesus was to love God and to love others. Christianity is a school of love. First John tells us it's a lie to say, I love God, if we can't love people. And God has given us this ingenious creation called marriage to teach us how to love like nothing else in, in the world. The whole concept of marriage being romantic, I just want to throw this in. As I said, I had a lot of thoughts, and you can get at one of these things uh, outside and read it later, but uh, I'll leave out some things. The whole concept of marriage being romantic is, I want to say, a very recent phenomenon. It came with a romantic period, a couple hundred years, last few hundred years, the age of enlightenment. 
and uh, especially the writings and the plays of Shakespeare when people were in love. They had talked that way before. So I was such a success. But in the old days, and I would like to say even in the culture of other societies, marriage is not based upon love and romance. And there also is not the level of divorce in some of those societies that there seems to be in ours. Because if these things aren't in ours, hey, the romance is dead. I don't feel loved anymore. What's our attitude? Hey, I'll just bail out, get out of this marriage. It's possible that we may be asking of our marriages today something that God never intended them to be. Now, that is a shocking thing to have to consider. But what if God had a whole different design we have? If you expect your marriage to be more than God intended to be, it's not your marriage's fault if it can't fulfill that. If you expect your spouse to be something that God never intended for them to be, is it your spouse's fault if they can't fulfill that? We're setting up a false thing. See, We set up idols. And then when our idols can't fulfill us, we resent those idols. And it happens in marriage, even in Christian marriage, that we be, re, begin to resent the image that we have set up of what we think this is, which maybe isn't what God or even your spouse thought it was. Now, having said that, I want to hasten to add, I'm not anti-romance. Well, it wasn't based. I'm not anti-happiness. I want to be in love. I like being in love. And God created us with brains, chemical balance in his design. And, and you know, the fact that he even created that we can be attracted to somebody, be infatuated is his design. Far, far be it from poor little old pitiful me to question when God himself made this feeling or infatuation. He created us to like people of the opposite sex. So it must have a purpose. And I believe he made it, and I believe he made marriage to be a holy and good purpose, something that we should celebrate and it should not be denied. I also understand the limitation of infatuation in God's purpose. We are a culture that is infatuated with infatuation. We just want that. It's, I mean, it's, it's there all the time. But I think we misunderstood the purpose until we really think that's all that matters is the physical attraction, the external, making sure we are being satisfied. And I tell you, that gives all kinds of complications in our families and in our society today. I don't know if I should tell you to take the time uh, to just tell you that, I just have a note here, it's in the uh, manuscript if you want it. Last 15 years, research has learned more about the human brain, has discovered that there's a neurochemical reaction that causes this feeling of infatuation. It, you're attracted to somebody, and a clock starts ticking in the brain, and they have realized by testing this can last for about 24 to 36 months, and then it starts to fade away. See, God created a chemical reaction man didn't even know about till lately uh, in the brain to have us attracted to one another, to cause us to come together. But it was never God's design that that was what was going to sustain that relationship on into the future. And when we get married for the wrong reasons, if we get married for trivial reasons, it stands the reason we'll get divorced for trivial reasons. But if we get married for eternal reasons, then we'll make it last based on those eternal reasons reasons. And uh, I, I mentioned two things that we'll have the heart to. Number one was that we would have the
purpose, that we rediscover the purpose. The second one is, if you're taking notes, we need to become a God-centered spouse, not a spouse-centered spouse. What is, what is a spouse-centered spouse? That's somebody where we treat our spouse on the basis of how they treated us in the last 24 to 48 hours. Let me explain. Uh, if she wakes up with an attitude, or, or maybe it's just a preoccupation with, with the d- duties of the day ahead, and you're not given the attention you think you deserve, then you respond how your spouse was responding. If she seems a little cold toward you, well, you are cold back to her. And then your spouse doesn't even know what's wrong, so she responds a little colder uh, to you. And if that's, if the Bible is true, and I know it is, then we all stumble in many ways. And if I let my wife stumbling cause me to stumble so that she stumbles, so that I stumble, it'll tear your marriage apart. We're in a vicious circle of stumbling each other. Cycle's got to be broken because we are now crucified with Christ. We're letting it form Him in us, and we don't take it personally like it's all against me. I referred to last Sunday, Matthew 3, Matthew 6, 33, in the Bible blog. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Jesus didn't say, seek first the kingdom of God, except when you get married. Seek first romantic feelings and happiness. He didn't say that. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not seek first the kingdom of God, except when you're talking about who you're going to marry or whether you're going to stay married or not. No, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We need to ask, how is this marriage helping me to grow in righteousness versus happiness? How's it helping to build the kingdom of God up in my life and in my family? Second, last verse I want to give you, Second Corinthians 7, 1. Not talking about marriage specifically, but it's applicable. It says there, let us purify ourselves. Let's purify who? Ourselves. See, now, in the natural, I want to purify my kids. I want to purify my spouse. I want to purify the person driving in front of me. I want to purify everybody except me because I have a limited view of our sin. But the verse goes on and says, purify yourself from everything that contaminates the body and spirit. Not just the scandalous sins, but the attitudinal sins as well. Everything that would contaminate. Then the verse goes on, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. God deserves to be reverenced. That is to have me treat my spouse on the basis of the call to love her as Christ loved the church. And that never ends. See, if I really begin to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I have a power to go beyond my sin, the power of the gospel, the power of grace. Then I love her on the basis of what Christ has done, not what she's done lately. And that never grows old. See the difference between changing and having based on what Christ has done? Our time's gone this morning. I don't have time to dwell any longer on this, uh, but I need to close. But let me just close with one earth-shaking thought to me. If I hear what God is saying to me through what I've been meditating on for two or three weeks here, He's saying to me, Jerry, my wife, is not just my wife. God's saying she's my daughter. 
and I expect you to treat her accordingly. Wow. When I realize how God feels about my wife, and it dawned on me that God looks on her as his daughter, that changes everything. I'm married to his daughter. And it's true. We've always had the concept that God is our father. That's a Christian doctrine, foundational, found in the Word of God. God is our Heavenly Father. But if you want to transform your marriage, meditate on God as your father-in-law if she's his daughter. Wouldn't that make God your father-in-law if you love his daughter and he's the father? Because he is. Wow. Wow. Quite a concept. Amen? My father-in-law married Jerry and I, and I would hate for him or anybody else to have to say uh, to me through the years that I wasn't treating my wife right because my father-in-law said that. If you want to transform your marriage, look on God in that way. And uh, change, it'll change what you're married to, who you're married to. It'll change the fact you're married to somebody who stumbles in many ways because she is his daughter. And, and so what does that mean? That means you're there now to comfort her, to pick her up, to protect her, to treat her like God would treat her. Now that you're uh, there, uh, you're there to make everything right, even if she messes up, because we all stumble in many ways. If she messes up, one of the best ways to worship God and to love God is to spoil his daughter. I think he likes it. It pleases him. I was reading Apostle Paul the other day where he said, it's my goal to please him. I like to please him by treating my wife as his daughter. I don't want to stress the father-in-law thing but too much, but how do you think about that? Isn't that a pretty good thing? I thought it was. What touches a father more than seeing his daughter cherished by her husband? We prayed that, that our daughter would marry a good, godly husband who would care for her and treat her right and love her and make her feel safe and cared for. And I just want to praise God how God has answered our prayer. Thank you for not being in the nursery so I could refer to you this morning, literally. Uh, we pray for a wife for our son who would respect him, honor him, stand by his side. Even though it says in Scripture, he may stumble in many ways, God's provided to help me for him in the ministry, and not that he's serving God alone. And I just publicly, while I'm preaching this message, I want to give God thanks this morning for giving Mark to Jody. I just want to thank uh, him. I, didn't have, I really felt when I got married, I don't have to worry about Jody anymore. Somebody else has responsibility now. Because I know that Mark will protect her. Not because he's a policeman, and it says on the card, we serve and protect, but because he's a Christian, godly husband who will cherish his wife, and I trust him to do that. I thank God for giving Leslie to Daryl. They're, they're out today, but uh, I know that Leslie's going to provide a good, safe home, and she's a blessing to Daryl in his life and his ministry because they have scholarly spouses that they can trust. I want to say, we, if we are fallen fathers here on this earth, and we deeply desire this, and it affects us, can you imagine the effect it has on our perfect heavenly Father and His desire for His sons and His daughters who are part of His church? We need to move into that way. See, it's real that we're living in a real world. You know, women... 
I know when you married that man, you probably had dreams of long, soulful discussions well into the night as he bared his feelings in his soul. And I said six months later, you realize I said before he wouldn't know an emotion if it struck him upside the head. And I guess that's a bit of a disappointment to you. But when you look at the disappointment from the perspective of a father-in-law who says, you know, if you could just see the joy that you gave my heart the day you got married, that you picked my son to be your husband, because I wanted him to have a good wife who would stand behind him, help him grow in Christ-likeness, who would support him and respect him, build him up, so he could be the man that I created him to be. I celebrated the day you said yes. Guys, when you chose that woman, even for selfish reasons, and God knew in your future that there might be breast cancer or Alzheimer's, you might say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. God answers, I-, I know you didn't, but the day you married, the joy that I felt that you're going to love my daughter and you're going to take care of her till I see her in heaven, our answer should be, I will sacrifice for her like you sacrificed for me. Although I stumble in many ways, I want to be what you were to me. And how can the answer be no when God asks, will you love me by loving my daughter? How can I say no? If you're tempted to leave your family, if you're tempted to stray, thoughts going through your mind, I just want you to know this morning, I want to say, I believe in a day of judgment. You say, don't you believe our sins are forgiven, the past is gone? Yeah, I believe the finished work of Christ on the cross has forgiven Put it far as the east from the west. Don't live under condemnation because of failures in the past. That's done. But we all will have to stand before God and give an account of what we've done here on this earth. And I want to declare publicly, I know I'm getting very serious before I close, but I want to declare publicly, I want to say, Jerry, I want you to know I will never leave you. No matter what happens on this earth, I won't. Because there's one conversation that I can never imagine having with God who loves me so well, and that is to have to say to him, I'm sorry, Lord, but your daughter wasn't good enough for me. I couldn't bear to have that conversation. So becoming a God-centered spouse is learning how to love my wife as God loved me, as my father, even as my father-in-law that I could love God that way. Would you just bow your heads for prayer? I'm sorry it takes long this morning, but I really want to make a statement for us and our church. Lord, I want to pray this morning that you would help us to consecrate ourselves to what you've called us to be. Lord, help every one of us, Lord, to know these two things. Help us, Lord, to rediscover your purpose for our life and our marriage, our, our existence. Lord, help us to become God-centered in all of our life, that we would seek first the kingdom of God, and especially even today in our marriages. Lord, I pray for every person here, married or not, that you'll help them make an application to why they are living on this earth. Why are they working there? Who are they living with? What about their family? You know what I'd like to do? If I could, 
could, could, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you, if God spoke to you this morning. I don't want anybody to have to declare that. But you know what I'd like for you to do if you're here this morning? I'd like to join hands with a spouse or if you've got a family member sitting with you. Jerry, would you mind coming up here and joining my hand as we pray? I want to have a point of consecration this morning. Maybe some of you have had heartache in the past and it hasn't worked out. Don't, don't be discouraged. Maybe God was working something greater in you. And Lord, I want to ask you this morning that you might bless all of our relationships. Bless the marriage relationship. Bless the family relationship. Bless our career, everything we do. And Lord, I pray above all after this message this morning, you will help to deliver us from selfishness. Help us to change our way of doing things. Lord, this morning, we dedicate our lives as we hold hands with those that are close to us. Rededicate ourselves to you, to our spouses, to love as you have loved us. Lord, I know that's what you want to do in our life. Deliver us from our selfishness so we can know you in our life. And everybody said amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Would you stand with me? And I hope the benediction this morning from the Old Testament means far more to you because of this. Let me just say, if I crowd a lot into this message, that's why I felt especially I appreciate the office staff helped me get this out. Uh, but I just ran off, actually, as close as I could to what I said here, the spiritual challenge of marriage. There's copies on the information desk. There's copies on the uh, tape uh, table out there. Is it God's plan or our ideas? God's way or man's way? God-centered perspective or man-centered view? Is marriage designed to make us holy or happy? If you'd like a copy to take and go over, I wish you would. Tell people that weren't here so they can pick one up. And I think it'd be a blessing to all of us. I've never put out a manuscript before, but I just, this week, I said, I feel God's laid this in my heart, and I've got to somehow get this across to the people in our church. Because we've had the wrong perspective. We're taking our cues from the world and then wondering why it doesn't work out. God's way will work. Amen? May the Lord bless you. Does that mean something more to you? I, oh, may God bless you. May he protect you. May the Lord smile upon you. May he be gracious to you. And may the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. And go forth in the name of the Lord. And uh, dwell on this. And let's do it in Jesus' name. Amen.